I was sitting in the sauna of the Creef Hydro. Um, by the way, this is a very appropriate story for being online, so don't worry. Um, but I was sitting in the sauna of Creef Hydro, and beside me was a colleague in ministry. It was way back in the early 1990s. Um, we, Colin was born by that time. I'm not sure Gregor was on the scene or not. But it was the first conference that we newbies at that time, i.e. those who had gone into the ministry of the Church of Scotland, were invited to, to reflect how things had gone over the last three or four years, so it probably was 92 or thereabouts, and there had been a large number, when I trained for the ministry way back, how the days have changed, there was about 30 odd plus who were at Trinity College in Glasgow, and then of course there was people training in Edinburgh and Aberdeen and also in St Andrews, so there was a large number of us who went in for the ministry at that time, many of our friends uh, are people of that group, that age, the problem is we're all coming to the age where we're beginning to think of retirement, so there's a real challenge in the wider church because many ministers are of that age. And we were at this conference. It was a strange conference. Some of you, you good folks here, imagine it to be a very spiritually uplifting conference. I have to be honest, it wasn't particularly that. Partly because the devotions that we had were certainly, well, unusual, and that was a polite way to put it. And, and already the, the tensions which have played out over the years, sadly, within that denomination, of course, which we're no longer a part of, but nonetheless, the tensions and the divisions were there. When I was at Trinity College in Glasgow, there was two rooms downstairs in the basement that had been made into a kind of, you know, a, a lounge area for, for students, for the ministry, and for those who were doing um, theology. And the one where the kettles and the coffee was were those that were the room that was inhabited by, let's say, those of us who are more orthodox or conservative in our interpretation of the faith. And there had been a bit like that that was knocked through the wall into a room behind. And those who were a more, fair to call us, progressive or liberal understanding of the faith sat through there. Um, I was regarded with suspicion by some of my more orthodox and fervent colleagues because occasionally I would venture through that hole in the wall and talk to people on the other side. And that caused some to think I was, you know, getting a wee bit kind of wobbly. It wasn't the case, but I did happen to think we should try and, you know, have fellowship, reach out the hand of fellowship to one or two folk on the other side. But that type of division was there, sadly. And the fellow was sitting beside me, and he had become, he trained with us at the same time, he was a year or two younger, he just recently got married to a lady who herself became the minister. He had just gone to his first charge, he was a year behind myself, and he had gone to his first charge, I have to say, not very far from here. And he was sitting there. And he wasn't in a good way. In fact, he started crying. And he was a you know, far more, he was kind of hairy, kind of burly kind of guy. So it's not the sort of thing. And it wasn't to do with the heat and the sauna. As he recounted his experience as a young man entering into ministry and being a pastor of a church, he had been used by God, I have no doubt, in youth ministry. But as Karen would tell you, being involved with youth ministry is not the same as being called to be a pastor teacher of a congregation. And, and, and he, for whatever reason, he wasn't particularly coping with it. And people, they had had a minister, an older man, for a period of time. And I think some thought this young fellow, well, they could just kind of, you know, play about with him and get him to agree to whatever they wanted to agree. And he was deeply troubled. 
and was really questioning his call to the ministry. And this was all starting to come out. And fortunately, I was finding the heat in the sauna becoming increasingly unbearable. And as I saw the, the clock thing, those of you who ever go to these places, see the clock thing going up as the heat increased. And then what made it worse was the fellow, in order to try and kind of, I don't know, calm the situation, took some water and flung it over the coals of the sauna as it became even hotter. And my dear friend became even more distressed. Things, let's say, began to get a bit blurry. And I began to feel myself think, if I don't get out of here soon, I'll be on the floor. And I have to say, and it's interesting, after 30 years, it still troubles me that eventually I had to put my hand in the, my dear friend, well, it wasn't a dear friend, but on this colleague's shoulder and say, look, Bill, or Billy as it was known, and please, look, let's, let's catch up later, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave. Or else it's been carried out. And I left. But there was no later, because he never reappeared at any of the meetings. We had these sessions, never reappeared at any of the other sessions. And my understanding is that he went home, and not long after he went on the sick, and then he demitted his charge. And as far as I'm aware, he reappeared as a minister for a short period up in Shetland, I think it was, and that wasn't very helpful. And he, in between time, became an RE teacher. And then some years later, and I know you'll, hopefully you understand why I'm telling you these big stories, but some years later, I was at Creef Hydro again. There was advantage of being in the kirk, I tell you. <laughs> and I was at Creef Hydro again at another minister's conference. I think the one further down, so say another five years. And there was a fellow there, a minister, who wasn't part of the group that I trained with, but was a minister in North Bend. And in a church that was doing well, they had major renovations, they had been a union, they had floored their gallery, the congregation now met upstairs, there was a lift, there was a lot of youth work going on in the church. And this fellow was very able, perhaps unlike Bill or Billy who was struggling with things, he appeared, this guy seemed to have it all. And, and I knew him through other friends. And yet, as we sat at the groups and discussed, I could see that, unlike where I'd met him before, and he was quite kind of laid back and quite cool, he was edgy and touchy and troubled. To the extent that one or two of us noticed it. And then when we had the time off in the afternoon, when some played golf and some went for a swim, some just laid in their beds, he disappeared off. And he never returned for the evening meal. And I became increasingly troubled, as did one of my friends. And eventually, we actually got the, the staff to open his room up, which we probably shouldn't have done, but open his room up at the Hydra to see if he was there, because we wondered. But he wasn't. And you really weren't meant to go away. You weren't meant to be in-house. And when finally he reappeared this evening, or that evening, and he did reappear this evening, looking very disheveled, I saw in the back of his head, he, he, he was starting to get a wee bit thin on top. This, not just a cut, but a wound. Whether he'd hit his head, or somebody had hit him, or what, we do not know. But he never returned to the rest of the conference. And a few weeks later, went on the sick. And not long after that, 
omitted from his charge. And as far as I'm aware, he's never held a post as a minister in a congregation ever again. And I've shared these two stories with you this morning really as a lead into, quite a lengthy lead in, and I appreciate that, but a lead into this story. You could not get, as I said as an introduction to when Steve read this, you could not get two most contradictory stories almost stuck together in the Bible. First Kings 18, the prophets of Baal and all that happened there. And we can recall how the Lord spoke to us. And, and thank you for the encouragement. Many of you spoke of how you were stirred in your hearts last Sunday by that story. We thank God for that. The fire that came from heaven and that forced men and women to decide who was Lord. And yet right along, right after that, we read Ahab told Jezebel, 1 Kings 19, everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And we're told that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And I'm sure all of us maybe have had experiences when we've had, aha, we've been at a wedding or a family celebration. Things have gone well at work and we feel quite chuffed. A project has been fulfilled and we were commended for it. Things have been good. We've maybe been at a church service and it's been particularly uplifting and encouraging, whatever. And so we've been in a bit of a high. And I'm sure all of us can testify to the fact that very often after the high, there's a coming down to the earth with a bump. The reality strikes in Monday morning and we've got to go to work or, or back to our normal duties. Perhaps because our senses were heightened by the joy and the celebration, the adrenaline has been flowing and we've been active and about ourselves. Perhaps we've become more aware and something that we wouldn't have noticed or something that happens that normally wouldn't have troubled us suddenly sticks us and hits us right in the face and we become irritated, we become annoyed, we become troubled and we become disappointed. And very quickly, the high that we've experienced is, well, that's light. But Elijah wasn't just back to the realities of life, although he was. But he was in a very, very different place. We're told he was filled with fear and ran for his life. And if you read on, as Steve already read to us, but read on with me. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under and prayed that he might die. I have had enough Lord, he said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. He is at the end of his tether. He just thinks that really perhaps the whole thing has been a waste of time. Interesting, he talks about the fact he's no better than his ancestors. He's haunted by the fact that one day he's calling people who were rebellious to God to have faith in God. And he demonstrates that with what happened on the, the mount and the prophets and all the rest of it. And perhaps there not the very next day, but certainly within a few days, he himself is saying, what's the point? And I wonder this morning if there's anyone here or listening to this that could testify that we too have been the place of Elijah. We've sat as Billy did 
in that sauna or wherever and thought to ourselves, what is the point of it all? And it may even be, and I'm very conscious, this is a very solemn subject, it may even be that in our hearts we've said the same as Elijah said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And perhaps even the thought of suicide or some other drastic action has filled our hearts. Of course, fear is a very insidious thing. It's like a black ink that seeps in and seeps through our very being. That's why, of course, we're told that God's perfect love casts out all fear. Fear is the fruit, inverted commas, of the fall. Remember in the Garden of Eden, back in the book of Genesis, that vital story. And what happens, Adam and Eve, after they have eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what do they do? They hide away because of fear of God. And then they start blaming each other as to what the problem and why the problem has taken place. And that spirit of hiding away, we might be surrounded by people, we might actually appear to have very busy lives, but in a bit like Elijah, who geographically has gone to an isolated place, in our hearts we are an isolated place. Some of us may have seen adverts on television for people who are suffering from depression and other forms of mental illness. And the scene is often set with people sitting in a pub or out in a playground with their children or in the midst of the office at the work. They're surrounded by people. It's not that they are physically necessarily alone, but in their hearts the situation they're going through, the feelings that are within them, the fear that grips and determines how they see themselves and others and the life round about them, they feel alone and isolated. And for someone who had had such a major and public role as Elijah, to be then in that position, often feelings of shame, of letting people down, and a whole host of other things then start to militate against our well-being. But notice, and really in many ways we just look through this story because it's used actually often by Christians involved in trauma healing ministry and other forms of ministry like that. Notice what happens. First of all, he falls asleep. And the importance of that, of letting our brains rest, and in our dreams and in our, in our times when we're not consciously dreaming, but when our brain is rejigging itself, built like the computer, it all gets walked off. The best thing to do is just switch it off of the socket and wait for a minute to switch it back on again and hope for the best. Well, as it reboots itself, rejigs itself, there is a healing and help and hope in that. Then look what happens. An angel touches him and says, get up and eat. And he looked round and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. Just to be thought, you know, it's always nice to smell freshly baked bread, isn't it? That's, you're supposed to do that, I think, if you're selling your house, you know. Have the coffee pot on and the baked baking, just to, that's supposed to add you know, an extra few thousand. Just a wee tip if you're thinking of selling your palace or anything, you know. Well, that's what's happening here. That homely feel, that homely sense, and that provision for his physical needs. He's told the Lord how he's feeling, but notice how the Lord doesn't right away say, hey, come on a minute, Elijah, just remember what happened two days ago, or last week, or last month. He doesn't. 
He sends a messenger, someone to come alongside, in this case an angel, to bring practical care and provision. And again, enables him to lie down and rest. And then we read in verse 7, the angel of the Lord comes again, touches him, quietly, graciously brings him round and says, get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he gets up and eats and drinks. And strengthened by that food, he travels 40 days and 40 nights until he reaches Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. There's, there's debate as to whether this is a journey that God has called him to go on, but it's a journey that he is going on. He's going to Mount Horeb, the place where Moses had an encounter face to face. Well, near as face to face as he could be, he had to hide his face, but nonetheless with an encounter with the living God. He's going back, in a sense, Elijah, to his roots. And sometimes as we struggle with depression and weariness of soul and spirit, it's good for us to go back, to remember, to recall the times where is that blessedness once I use. I know one of Francis Ridley Havergal's hymns, I can't remember, Cowper's, one of Cowper's hymns, who was a hymn writer who suffered from depression. Where is that blessedness once I use? And to go back and to remember special times of spiritual encouragement and refreshment. And Elijah's on that journey, again physically, but also emotionally, to that place where God made himself known. To the other great man of the Old Testament, Moses. I've had enough. And then we see how the Lord opens up the real reasons behind all of that. Not right away, but after over a month of journeying, of listening, of providing, of caring. And a lesson to us all, there's no quick fix in sorting out these deep problems. We read the word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Well, the reverent example of the poor me's, this is it. And actually, of course, his complaint isn't right. You might have noticed, maybe not, that last week when we were reading about the story, we mentioned about Obadiah and that faithful servant of the Lord who was in the court of King Ahab. And when Obadiah back in 1 Kings 18 had that encounter, remember what Obadiah said to Elijah. Haven't you heard? Verse 13 of chapter 18. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 15 each, and supplied them with food and water. Now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah wasn't the only one. Indeed, at the very end of the story, we're told that the Lord himself says that he reserved 7,000 in Israel. Verse 18, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him. He wasn't alone. But again, our emotional needs and our sense of low, it's lack of worth and self-worth and everything else can make us believe that, even though we aren't alone, even though we're, what we're going through isn't the first time that anyone in the world has ever gone through that same situation. You're actually in good company. But that's not how you work. And being told, well, you know, 
there's plenty of others, doesn't necessarily always help. But the Lord gives room for Elijah to open up and to tell God how he really is. It may not be the way it should be. It may not be right. But it's how he is. And sometimes we just need to sit and listen. And we might well have our thoughts. I could assure you as a pastor, I can tell you that is the case. You might well have your thoughts. But often you just don't hold your tongue listen and watch people's body language tells so much let that speak and notice then what happens he tells how he feels and what does the Lord say well he could have said you're not the only one he could have said come on Elijah pull yourself together he could have said Elijah you're getting a good kick up the backside there's folk a lot worse than you are blah blah after all he's well away from Jezebel now he'd gone to Judah and now he's away to Mount. he's well away Jezebel's reach will not be able to hold him but actually at the end of the day it's not Jezebel's physical reach but the fear that he has of what might happen or might not happen that actually grips this poor man so what happens what have you done a great and powerful wind took the Lord said, Go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, earth, wind and fire. Are we old enough? Some of us old enough to be, I've still got their LPs. Uh, after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. You see, the Lord is the Lord of the earthquake. There's plenty of evidence of that in the Old Testament where the ground opened up and people were swallowed in judgment. The Lord is the God of the fire. The fire has just come down and burnt up the, the, the sacrifice laid up before the prophets of Baal. And indeed, in other parts of the Old Testament, it comes down to consume those who are rebellious against the Lord. Lord is the God of the wind who blows the sea apart to allow Israel to be delivered but also blows the sea to cover up in order that the Egyptians may drown. God is and does use the earthquake and the wind and the fire and all these big things. But for the fragile soul for the troubled in heart, for the weary and the burdened and the laid, burdened down and the laden with fears and guilt and sorrow, a gentle whisper is what is needed. There was a gentle whisper the night that Jesus was born. There was a gentle whisper as Mary held in her arms the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. The one who would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. 
the one that the prophet Isaiah in that very stirring passage of the suffering servant tells us. Listen again to what he has to say about this Jesus, this suffering servant. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds. Oh yes, the earthquake and the wind and the fire may well herald the coming of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the great I Am, the judge of the living and the dead. But for the troubled believer, weary and worn and sad, the quiet whisper of God's grace and love is what And as we draw to a close in that whisper, notice the Lord does not go through it all, does not say, what about this? And why did you say that? And no, he doesn't do that. That's not to say, and we're not recording, that there wasn't times over the coming weeks and months and years when these things were talked through and dealt with or brought out and at least explored. But interesting here what we have is the Lord saying to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, announce Hazel, king of Aram, also announce Jehu, son of Mishri. Tell you, Steve, you read that very well and got all the names pronounced right. That's why I should do it. Uh, and announce Elisha, son of Japhat, to succeed you as prophet. And then he says, I reserve 7,000 in Israel. He gives Elijah a job to do. Those two men, as I say, I don't have contact with them. I wonder, but now after, as I get towards the end of my ministry, I wonder if anybody ever did sit alongside them and listen and didn't allow the heat of the sauna to overwhelm them. Perhaps I should have ended up on the floor. Who knows? But the judgment seal will find out. And listen to their cries and their heart feel, felt sorrow and the despair of who they were, their wondering of who this God is who had seemingly called them to do this job, a job that was too much for them. Did anybody ever sit and listen and care and love and quietly bring God's word and suggest that they did have a future? tomorrow was a new day that the sun would rise and hope would come there are many reasons for depression and mental illness psychological issues genetic backgrounds emotional damage caused by things in our youth 
Various personality types and profiles make some people more vulnerable. And certainly as a church, when we think of people involved, to be involved in ministry and leadership, then more time needs to be spent in assessing all of that. There are just some people whose personality type, whose gifting, whose profile, if you want to use that word, and now as a denomination we do psychometric testing and all the rest of it, they may be people of faith, but the worst place thing you can do for them, and indeed for a congregation, is put them in a pulpit or call them to be a leader. Of course there are. All of that is true. But none of us, one of our times, when we've thought, I've had enough. And we need to hear still small voice of God and it may be this morning that there is someone sitting here or someone listening to this at home or later on online a Christian someone who professes faith who would say and would testify that they trust in you and your grace in Jesus where they are at at the present time they feel they've had enough and perhaps even more concerning than that they are having dark thoughts about the future and all of us Lord will have known the challenge of life and some of us, because of the type of person we are, our personality type, and all the things I mentioned briefly at the end that can contribute to that, we are more vulnerable to de clinical depression and to things associated with that. You know us. The hairs of our head are counted and numbered. How we pray, O oh God, Hear your still small voice of care, of compassion, and yes, of commissioning for a new day. Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait. Hush our hearts to listen in expectancy <coughs> through Jesus Christ our Lord.